0: Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. We are continuing our series in Revelation. We start in chapter 4. We move from the seven churches that John writes to as he kind of uh, pulls back the curtain behind what's happening in these seven churches throughout Asia Minor. And now we go into another section of the book, where John will speak to us about kind of unveiling what's happening in heaven. I want to remind you, Revelation is not a roadmap for some future event or events that we need to decode. Um, Revelation is simply a book about discipleship. Revelation is about answering the question, what will encourage the church to remain faithful to the end? In the midst of all that's going on in the world, in the midst of political oppression, in the midst of opposition or persecution against cosmic evil forces working against the way of Jesus, how will we be strengthened and remain faithful to Jesus as followers? And John makes it very simple. He writes this letter to give the church a vision of reality. You see, Revelation is about a vision. It's about seeing reality and seeing the world for what it really is. And I believe Jesus wants to give you eyes to see. He wants you to see things as they really are. He wants to train you in how to observe the world around you. It requires uh, a, a, an attentiveness to the things of the Spirit, listening to God, recognizing that things are not just as they seem. There's There are forces working underneath or behind the structures, the people, the powers in the world. And so as disciples of Jesus, who are being trained to be faithful to him, we need to see things differently. We need a reality check. And that's what chapter four is all about. Chapter four is about looking at reality, seeing reality for what it is. It's about changing your mind, changing your perspective. Let's read verse one of chapter four. It says this, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Whenever you read the word in the book of Revelation, open, it's like a double click on your computer. You double click the mouse and a window opens, and this is what's happening now. We move from the first three chapters dealing with the first churches to now another portal opening, and it's a perspective, a vision of heaven. The book of Revelation, remember, is broken up into five major sections with an intro and a conclusion, and so what we have are five major sections, and we, we finished the first last week with the church of Laodicea, where we see Jesus is standing at the door, knocking, waiting to be invited in, and then he ushers the church into this response to worship. Now, John stands looking, beholding, and what he sees is a door open into heaven, and heaven is an incredible theme, an important theme, not just in this book, but also for every disciple's life. You see, we need to understand what is happening in heaven, not what's happening in some spatial space far away from the activity of the here and now. Heaven is not some place that's created so we, to where we go when we die. Heaven is a reality to be experienced here and now. Heaven is is the space, the, the realm at which God's will is exercised fully. One scholar says this, heaven is the sphere of ultimate reality. What is true in heaven must become true on earth. Thus, John is taken up into heaven to see that God's throne is the ultimate reality behind all earthly appearances. You see, what we see in Revelation is that heaven is ultimate reality. And God's throne is the headquarters for reality. And why is this so important? Why is heaven and the reality of heaven so important? Well, as Christians, we must retrain our minds to see the world the way God intended it to be. We must see the world the way God intended the world to be. We must fill our imagination with God's imagination, his ideas, his His truth. And and heaven as reality helps shape the way we live and interact in the world. We'll get to that in a second. But Father John Powell, a priest and a psychologist, wrote a very helpful book called uh, Fully Human, Fully Alive. And the subtitle of his book is a new life through a new vision. And all throughout his book, Powell argues that if we are to change, to grow, there must first be a change in this basic vision. There must be, in his words, a change in our perception of reality. John Powell um, calls our perception of reality a frame of reference, in order for us to change, he says, we must, turn, uh, we must change our perception of reality. You see, our perception of reality is limited to our experience, to our worldview, to our culture, to the things that we are taught growing up, to the, the news that we read, to the education that we have, to the experiences in our life. All of that influences our view of what's real and what's true, our reality. In fact, if you are in a, a, a relationship with another human, what you have to understand is they have a reality of their own to their own experience. And you also have a reality of your own. And to change, we must be aware of this perspective and we must have a frame of reference. And as Christians, our frame of reference must become heaven. Heaven must become our focal point, our our shaped experience. Heaven must, we must learn to be resourced with the reality of heaven. Fascinating, isn't it? In other words, we must learn to give our attention to what is true, to what is ultimately true. Real. We must learn to live out of the ultimate reality, which we will see is, according to the book of Revelation, which is heaven. So let's read this chapter, uh, a few chap- uh, verses in chapter four together. It says this, after this I looked and there before me was a, a door standing open. And then he, he, wa- he hears um, from Jesus, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. It says in verse two, at once, um, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven and, uh, with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and they had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder in front of the throne. Seven lamps were blazing. There are this, um, these are the seven spirits of God also in front of the throne. There was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. So John uses his uh to his best ability the language that he has at his disposal Uh, to describe this vision he has of heaven. And in it is this powerful image of God's throne. And he's using poetry. He's trying to expand our imagination as disciples to enter into this uh, contemplative idea, this concept, this truth about where God resides. And the imagery is all built around the throne of God. And the throne is a major theme throughout the book of Revelation. And the imagery he pulls us, um, pulls Uh, this out of would have been uh, alluding to tons of scriptures in the Old Testament. We see (coughs) images of Exodus, of Ezekiel, of Isaiah, um, of Daniel, and he talks about the throne in heaven and someone sitting on the throne in heaven. And uh, what, what the throne represents is the symbol of God's sovereignty over all things. God is in charge of all things. He has the power over all things. In the throne room itself is the place which God exercises his rule over the world. And then he uses language like jasper and ruby and a rainbow. All of this symbolizes uh, through language, allusions and metaphors of God's uh, character and promises throughout the scripture. It's tied to Genesis. And then it goes into uh, Noah, the story of Noah, where the rainbow represents God's faithfulness and God's promise and mercy. And then it, it pulls us into the future where it represents what will come once and for all for all creation, new creation being restored. Are you with me? There's a lot here. I'm doing my best to unpack it. Pack it. And then it talks about this, uh, what he sees around the throne. And I have some images I'll throw up here of people that have tried to draw this or, or paint this image. 24 elders, with their own thrones dressed in white, with gold crowns uh, circled around uh, this throne of God. And it's debated. Some scholars say that the 24, the number represents the significance of 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. But I actually believe what would be more aligned with the way Revelation Revelation is written is that um, what you have is this contrast to what was going on in the Roman Empire at the time it was written. You see, in the first century, um, kings and leaders might have 12 bodyguards. That was a common number to have around you as a king. But Caesar, specifically at the time that this was written, uh, Domitian, the, the, the Caesar or the emperor of Rome, he was known for having 24 bodyguards. And so if, if he ever entered into the city, he would be surrounded by 24 bodyguards. If he ever entered into the games, uh, the Colosseum, if you would, he would be uh, surrounded by 24 bodyguards. And so what you see is this picture of what would have been uh, similar to something that would have been experienced in the first century, a contrast to a cultural norm. The cultural norm, the person with power is Emperor Domitian surrounded by 24 bodyguards. But uh, that's not who sits on the throne. When heaven is unveiled, when you pull back the curtains of heaven, what you see is God is on the throne with 24 elders who are not bodyguards but who are elders who you will see will lay down their crowns to worship this one true King of Kings, Lord of Lord. It is a specific challenge to the anti-kingdom, the kingdom of the age, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of darkness. And when heaven is peeled back, when you see what's going on in heaven, what you see is Jesus is king, and he's surrounded by 24 elders and and uh, all sorts of other things. You have lightning rumbling, you have thunder, and this is all from Exodus 19. You have seven lamps, which are the seven spirits. Again, it's not saying that God literally has seven spirits, but in revelation numbers have meaning and significance and um, they're not literal numbers and so seven represents the completeness or complete wholeness and so fire represents the purifying healing presence of God and the spirit of completeness. Are you with me? We're going fast. I love uh, the, the fact that what you see before the throne is a sea of glass clear as crystal. You see Throughout the Bible, the sea represents the things that separate us from God. The sea is given uh, language like chaos. And throughout the centuries and, and even the, the Jewish community, they were terrified of the sea. They were There was all sorts of superstition around the chaos of the ocean and the sea, and what you see in heaven is that the sea is calm. The sea has been subdued. The things that work against God's creation, the things that work to overcome God's creation are subdued by, subdued by the power and the authority of Jesus. Are you with me? Also, just a side note, just for fun, um, there was a, at the time around this was written, there was a a famous mythological story, a Canaanite version of the creation story, which saw that Baal, the god of fertility, battled the sea monster Leviathan, the god of chaos. And that epic battle resulted with human creation. But that's not what we see in this story. We see that God in Genesis created humanity out of love. And even as things are, moving in chaos, even as uh, the beast will emerge out of the sea later in, in chapter 13 of Revelation, we will see that what, is, what happens once and for all is God heals and subdues and restores creation so that it's good and beautiful. So what we see in heaven, well, the glimpse we're given of heaven is God's power and sovereignty, his holiness, his shalom, his beauty, and all of creation working for its good. Are you with me? All right, let's continue and then we'll get to the practical stuff. Uh, Verse six, it says, in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle. So language again, trying to describe what he saw. They each had wings, six wings covering covered with eyes, and day and night they couldn't stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns on uh, before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being oh so what you have in this beautiful story is um this image of heaven you have these weird looking creatures can we say weird funny like images of like six wing ox thing and eagle thing and lion in a face of a human and they're just non-stop circling the throne saying holy 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 what's the point of all this well at at the end of the day what we know uh, from other traditions including the Jewish tradition there's one rabbi rabbi Abihu, in 300 AD taught that there were four mighty creatures and this is so important for us because I think this is what John's getting at. The mightiest among the birds, he said, is the eagle. The mightiest among domestic animals is the ox. The mightiest among uh, the wild animals is the lion. The mightiest among them all is man. And God has taken all these and secured them to his throne. In other words, the four living creatures most likely represent the whole animate, creation by God for God. In other words, it's a symbolic image of all of creation uh, worshiping God in heaven. So what you see in this, so as John confronts the churches with issues that they are experiencing locally by contextual problems within the cities and contexts they find themselves, rather than give, giving the church practical steps to get them out of their issues, he draws their imagination into the realm of heaven. Here is what reality looks like. What is happening behind the scenes? God is in sovereign power. God sits on the throne. Jesus, the slain lamb, is victorious, and all of the created order is organized and um reorienting their lives around worshiping God. God's promises are realized. Chaos is brought into order and all of creation participates in this epic liturgy of worship of its creator. That is reality. Reality is when we wake up every morning, we can part- we can choose to participate excuse me, in the the liturgy of heaven. We can choose to enter in to what is being put on display by creation. We can see peace and wholeness and worship and love and joy, and we have access to the resources of God's reality. Are you with me? You are to be trained to access the resources of God's reality and draw from the resources of heaven to enter back into ordinary life. This is what Revelation 4 is about, recognizing what is true and what is real and what is not true and what is not real. It may seem like it, but behind the scenes, there is a liturgy going on. And in You can hear the sound of heaven saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And when this happens, those who are around the throne of God, they take off their crowns. They lay down and they redirect their worship towards God. They declare the truth of who Jesus is. They declare his value, his worth, his power, his honor. All of creation gives back to God and points their lives, their resources, their energy, their attention back to God because without God, there is nothing. Without God, we are nothing. Without God, we cease to exist. There is no battle in heaven. How can there be a battle with the power of God? There is no battle. God is working right now to restore once and for all, all things back to the way they were intended to be. And the way that it works is creation. Worship's day and night. We stare into heaven and we see who God is for who he really is, and we see what life looks like, the way life is intended to be. We see shalom, all of creation living in harmony with the creator. And what is this mechanism that empowers shalom? Jesus empowers shalom, and what is the response to the reality? The answer is worship, worship is what shalom looks like. And we, right now, wherever we find ourselves, can reorient our lives around reality. We can respond to reality with the only response worthy of reality, and that's worship. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, worship is a meeting at the center so that our lives are centered in God and not lived eccentrically. We worship so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. Failure to worship cosigns, consigns us, excuse me, to a, uh, to a life of spasms and jerks at the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction and every siren. Without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or deluded lethargy as we are, in turn alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. If there is no center, there is no circumference. People who do not worship are swept into a vast restlessness epidemic in the world with no steady direction and no sustaining purpose. Boom, mic drop, amen, hallelujah. You see, worship at the end of the day is about being realigned with reality. Worship is about being realigned with reality. If heaven is the ultimate reality, when we worship, we are realigning ourselves with what is ultimately true in the world and in creation. And so we reorder our lives as Christians around truth. We must learn to reorder our lives around Jesus here and now. And when we do this, when we step into heaven's reality, when we step our bodies and our minds and our our emotions and our relational capacities into reality, we begin to redeem the ordinary and mundane moments of life through his presence when we fill our imaginations with the reality of heaven, we can access that reality here and now. We can learn to draw from the resources of heaven. We can draw from peace. We can draw from joy. We can draw from Jesus' non-anxious presence. We We can bring those things into this current state because heaven is all around us, waiting to burst into the ordinary life. But we have to train ourselves to live into that reality. We have to learn to see the world the way it really is. And the question that Revelation will keep asking is essentially, do you have eyes to see? Can you see what is going on? Do you have capacity to remain faithful when everything is literally going to hell. The only way you can possibly maintain a consistent, uh, the only way you can maintain that presence is by stepping into the reality. The only way you can do that is through worship. Worship is what resets the alarm clock. It, it, it resets. It gets us into the right time zone, if you will. It, it keeps our perspective centered. I remember when I was flying from Montana to Seattle, on my way home from Montana, going to LA at a stop in, L, uh, in Seattle. And I remember that the layover was going to be quick. It was about an hour layover. And I looked at my clock and it said something like two o'clock and my flight was at like 2.10 and I began to panic. I began to have all sorts of anxiety. My imagination was filled with the ideas of having to run down uh, the airport and run to catch my next plane. I knew I was gonna miss it. I got a text already ready, it was on airplane mode and I, I got a text ready to send to Alex to tell her that I was gonna miss my flight, look for another connecting flight. I was longing to be home with my boy. At the time I had one kid and I remember um, that when we landed, I was I was like trying to make eye contact with the uh, flight attendant. And then as soon as I turned on my phone, the time uh, on my phone changed to 108, not 2.08. And I had an hour to get my next flight because I was in a different time zone. And all of the anxiety, all of the fear, all of the playing out the scenarios in my head, it all went away because I was given the proper perspective, worship, gives us the right perspective. Are you with me? But worship is not just about singing, especially in Revelation, and what you need to know about this book um, is that there's something significant going on. We don't see it, we don't catch it because we've been shaped by our religious experience. We've been shaped by the songs we sing as followers of Jesus and Christians, for most of us, but, and we are disconnected from first century context. But what you see is this, when the elders cry, worthy, they aren't using words from their religious world or religious experience. The phrases they sing around the throne come from the secular world in the first century. They were borrowed and redirected from the political realm of their day. You see, worthy was originally shouted by the citizens of the Roman Empire to the Roman Emperor as the Roman Emperor entered the city. Worthy was shouted by senators as the Emperor entered into the great hall. Scholars have done a great deal of work of research to help us understand something called the imperial hymns. They were songs and choruses written to be sung at political events for Caesar. And here are a list of the words that, we were, that were used first for the emperor before it was applied to Jesus. Holy one, glory, salvation belongs to you, authority, worthy to receive power. Do these words sound familiar? You see these words were directly taken from the secular idolatrous propaganda. In other words, they were taken from the cultural liturgies of its day and redirected towards Jesus. In other words, what, what, what Revelation reveals is that the world knows how to worship. The world knows how to worship idols. You see, worship is simply uh, bringing or ascribing worth to someone or something, just giving, it's saying that this is worthy, this is worthy of my worship, this has value. And what's going on in heaven, um, what you see in Revelation four is it takes the way the world worships, it takes the things that are being ascribed as valuable and worthy of someone's uh, worship like Caesar and it's taking the language, it's taking the, the, the names for Caesar and it's redirecting them towards Jesus. It's taking what's real in the human experience in the first century and saying, well, when you look into heaven, what you will do is you will ascribe worth and value to the one who has the value and the worth your values will be redirected towards the God who is worthy of your worship. You see, worship is not just about singing songs. It's not about coming together and singing Kumbaya. That's not what we're doing, I'm not saying that. Worship is about redirecting your devotion. Worship is about redirecting your energies, your resources, your attention to God. And heaven hijacks the cultural forms of worship and redirects their power and its meaning to Jesus. Because when you say Jesus is worthy, you are at at the same time, you are saying Caesar is not worthy. When you pull back the curtain of heaven and you see a throne in the first century and in the throne room is Jesus on the throne, you are at the same time saying Caesar is not on the throne. When Jesus is worthy of power, Caesar is not worthy of power. Heaven can't stop worshiping. So we need to step into that reality. The thing is, we too can't stop worshiping. We're just worshiping the wrong things. Quick question, take 30 seconds. What are the the cultural forms of worship today? We might not have a Caesar to declare our allegiance to, but we definitely have powerful idols that require time and energy, allegiance and devotion. Do we not? Would you just take a few moments for a second and just if you were to be honest with yourself, would you take 30 seconds and write down the things in your life that give you meaning, significance, identity and purpose outside of Jesus? What did you write down? What did you write down? Now just imagine if you would. Look at that list. Imagine if you were in worship, brought, caught up into the spirit, whatever that means to John, and Jesus reveals to you heaven right now. What would you see? You see, I I think, and would you just um, amuse me for a second, let me just suggest what I think is happening in this moment. What would you see today would there be songs being sung by these creatures and elders saying things like worthy of power which makes sense to the first century or would you see something else perhaps you would see money being given to Jesus the elders lay down and they take off the crowns and rather than saying oh worthy is the lamb they say you are worthy of our attention You see iPhones being given to Jesus. You see consumerism being handed over to Jesus. Our addiction to materialism. Maybe you see our people offering their bodies as a sacrifice, their sexual identity as a sacrifice, their time, their energy, their families, their dreams, their careers. Do you see what I'm getting at? What I'm getting at is worship. We cannot leave it to a spiritual practice. It is an everyday, ordinary, mundane reality that we wake up every morning and give our attention to the idols in our pocket. We, We walk around and we give a quiet time to Amazon Prime. We give a quiet time to Snapchat and, uh, and, uh, and Instagram and Facebook and we are devoted to checking in and texting and boxering and Marco Poloing and all TikTok and all the other things that are coming out. Brothers and sisters, if there was something that God might want us to do in this time, it's to not be distracted but to give him our attention. You see, we live in what the uh, what is known as the attention economy, the way our world is being designed in the West is designed to grab your attention. And brothers and sisters, let me say this. Attention is the beginning of worship. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Where you put your attention, your energy goes. That's where your mind goes. And where your mind goes, it shapes the way you live and interact in the world. And the way you live live and interact in the world will shape the reality that you live in. And what Jesus wants to do is to train you in reality. And if we live in the attention economy, And I believe that one of the things that is a limited and sacred resource is our attention. You see, we live in a world where the smartest and most brilliant minds in the world are working to capture your attention through apps, through YouTube, through social media pings and pop-ups and notifications. We are becoming less and less uh, able to focus on what matters most. A study that went from 2000 to 2015 uh, discovered that we decreased our attention span from 12 seconds to 8.25 seconds, uh, just below the average attention span of a goldfish, which has a nine-second attention span. You see, our brains are being formed by the digital age, and the world we live in is not neutral. There are sophisticated algorithms and artificial intelligence at work on apps like YouTube, on websites like YouTube and social media pages like Facebook and Instagram and our news apps, they're all curating these, this power behind these screens to draw you into them. And I believe that our greatest threat right now in our devotion to Jesus is not the liberal left, it's not the conservative right, it's not the limitation of our religious liberties, it's not the narrative of the American dream or narcissism, it's not technology in itself, and it's not money, it's not image. It is our inability to pay attention to God because if we can't pay attention to God, we can't worship him in his reality because we are walking around being distracted into oblivion. We live in what is called continuous partial um, attention. In other words, We multitask everything. We can be on our phone texting while talking to somebody while watching a show in the background making dinner for our kids. And when John sees heaven open, he sees a throne and the entire created order redirects all of its life and its energy back to Jesus. It has a single focus on Jesus. What does worship today look like for you? Do you have a devotion? You might not, at least to Jesus, but you might have one to Amazon Prime or Netflix or social media or the news or whatever it is. How, brothers and sisters, will you respond to reality? Will you choose to worship God? And I'm not talking just about singing songs, although that is important. I'm talking about worshiping with attention, time, body, our words, our actions, our energy, our wealth, our possessions, our dreams, our careers, our intentions. Will you choose to be centered around truth and reality? If we are to remain faithful as disciples of Jesus in a culture feverishly worshiping the idols of our age, we must learn to redirect all of our worship to God. If we are to live as faithful followers of Jesus, we must have the right vision of reality. It is Jesus who sits on the throne, not you. Not your dreams, not your family, not your career, not your past, not your future. It is Jesus, end of the story, stop, period. It's the end. Jesus sits on the throne. That is reality. How will you respond to reality? Let's pray. Father, be real in our life. May we come under you and choose to respond in worship. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.